And we're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of John. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We've had a couple of weeks away from the Gospel of John. Uh, Ken was uh, preaching the week that I was on vacation, and Pastor Greg was here this past Sunday. And so we get back into John chapter 4, and we remember that Jesus has had a lengthy conversation with Nicodemus, that he has performed miracles, that he has presented himself as the living water to this woman who was at Jacob's well in Sychar in the region of Samaria. And Jesus is now leaving the region of Judah. He is going towards Galilee because his popularity is creating challenges in his ministry. The Pharisees are already aware of the ministry of John the Baptist. They see what John the Baptist is doing in discipling, excuse me, baptizing people. They've seen Jesus, who is now baptizing people. They see the crowds growing. And the Pharisees are very concerned about what is taking place. They have no authority. They have no control. And so Jesus is now leaving Judah to go towards Galilee. And he's intentionally chosen to take the short route through the region of Samaria, which is a people group that is desperately hated by the Jewish people because the Samaritans are what Jews consider to be half-breeds, the result of hundreds of years of intermingling and intermarriage. And the Jews would avoid the region of Samaria at all costs. In fact, they had such disdain for non-Jews, Gentiles as we would be considered, that in the marketplace, if they came across a Gentile, they would go through a ceremonial cleansing and purification. They would literally shake the dust off of their feet as they entered back into their homeland or their home region of Judea and specifically in Jerusalem. So Jesus chooses this very specific route straight through the region of Samaria to show his disciples that his message, this message of redemption, was not exclusive for the nation of the Jew, but it was for all the world, even those from an ethnic region or a nation that one would hate. The global need for salvation as a result of a separation from a holy God is not a Jewish problem, it is a worldwide problem. And the Jewish people were from the very beginning called to spread the message to help solve the problem of separation by helping the nations understand who this God is and how they could rightly relate to Him so that they could be eventually saved from their sin when the great Messiah would eventually arrive on the scene. As we look way, way back in God's covenant with Abraham in the 12th chapter of Genesis, He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There was a specific expectation that Abraham would be the father of many nations, not just a Jewish nation. And through these many nations and the covenant God made with Abraham, that other nations would come to know him in the same way that the Jewish nation would. Many years later, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God 
and there is no other. Again, in Isaiah 49, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? This is prophetically speaking to the Messiah. And he goes on to say, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It was always God's plan for the nation of the Jew to spread the good news to all the world around them. They never embraced a missionary mentality. And it seems that they believe their, their privileged position as God's chosen people was one of entitlement and not of responsibility. I have one page of notes and I have ten pages of blank. So that doesn't... Um, doesn't get you very far. Now, you hear 10 pages of notes and you go, oh my gosh, well, I've had 18 before, so 10 is going to be good. All right, so it's back. Very good. All right, so Jesus has met this woman at the well. This is his first missionary journey, if you will. He goes into this region that is intensely hated by the Jews He meets this immoral woman who is an outcast in her own village and he shares with her the words of life that he is in fact living water and that if she will drink of the water that he provides, she will thirst no more. So the the story continues now as we see the impact of this encounter that this woman had with Jesus at Jacob's well. We'll read verses 27 through 42 out of John chapter 4. Follow along if you will. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Many more believed Jesus because of his word. And many were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this was this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So we're going to look at this passage in four different sections and go through this encounter that Jesus is having with his disciples and then is going to have, there's going to be a conversation in the city between the woman and the men. So there's two settings that this takes place at 
at the well with the disciples, back in the city with the woman and the men. So the first thing we're going to look at here is the mystery. The mystery we see in verse 27. Remember, the disciples have been off buying food. They have now returned. And at this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Before I do this, I check to make sure everything's here, and it is, and then it goes away. So it makes me wonder the kind of battle that's going to take place in our minds today as we hear God's word and as we're challenged with what we hear from it. I do believe very significantly in a spiritual battle, and I believe it takes point in every worship service we're in, and I think most especially this one. So we have this mystery that uh, Jesus is now talking with this one. So the first phrase here that we see at this point, it implies that just as Jesus is declaring to the woman that he is the Christ, that she is thinking he may be, the disciples show up. And they are amazed. That word amazed means to marvel or to wonder. The other ways that this word has been used in the gospel accounts is that Mary and Joseph were amazed at what people were saying about the baby that they had just given birth to. The crowds were amazed at the teaching they heard come from the mouth of Jesus. The crowds were also amazed at the miracles that they saw Jesus perform. And here we see that the disciples have the same kind of amazement that Jesus is speaking to this woman. I wonder what they would have thought had they hold the whole, heard the whole conversation, that she has had five different husbands and is now living with a man who was not her husband. What do you think they would have thought at that? Here is Jesus talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. So the mystery is, why is Jesus talking with a woman? Now, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, it was forbidden for a rabbi to talk with a woman in public at all. It was frowned upon for a man to talk with any woman in public with the exception of his mother. The societal norms of the day created huge barriers between people in general and even more so between ethnic groups. And we see this being lived out in an extreme form within the Jewish nation who did not want to have anything to do with Samaritans or with Gentiles. And so here is Jesus talking with a woman, and he is breaking down the barriers that exist between the preconceived ideas that Jewish people have and the plan of redemption that God is unfolding before them. If you go through the Gospels, and if you read into the book of Acts, it isn't until Acts chapter 9 and 10, when Peter has a vision and is told to go to the house of Cornelius and is then given privilege to eat all of these unclean foods that Peter understands through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God has broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And as we looked at many, many months ago in the book of Ephesians, that the Gentiles have been grafted into the nation of the Jew and God sees them as one. So this is the beginning of the breaking down of these barriers. The reality that the message of good news was for all, not just for those that the Jewish people approved of. Today, the good news is for all, not just for those that we like or we approve of, or for those that we deem worthy to accept the message of grace 
from God. You know, if you go back and read in the Old Testament, when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, the country of the hated Assyrians, you know what Jonah did, right? Instead of going to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction to escape because he hated the Assyrians. He knew that God was a God of mercy and grace. And Jonah could not figure out in his mind how God could love and accept a people that he hated so much. So this is the kind of mentality that that the Jewish people have. And here is Jesus breaking down the barriers that exist between the Jews and the Samaritans. You know, we aren't any more worthy of receiving the message of the good news of Jesus Christ than the Jewish nation thought they were worthy of. It is incredible that people can have a sense of entitlement in terms of their salvation. It doesn't matter if their great, 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 great granddaddy was a pastor. It doesn't matter if we could trace our lineage to the great awakenings that took place over in Europe during the time or following the time of the Reformation. We are simply recipients of the love and grace of God and He will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy and you and I are simply called to deliver the message. John summarizes the disciples' amazement with these two questions that were not asked but were thought in their minds. To the woman, what do you seek? And the more literal rendering would be, what do you want? With a great sound of disdain in their voice. The other question that was thought in their minds but not spoken out loud is, Jesus, why are you speaking to her? And a more literal rendering of that would be, what are you doing talking to a woman? But they had enough respect for Jesus that they weren't going to utter those words and they didn't question the woman that he was speaking to. So I want you to think about this. Thinking about coming across your young child or your grandchild who has stumbled across a can of paint with a loose lid and they're just smearing it all over everything. They're finger painting the walls and the carpet. And you come in and you say, what do you think you're doing? Right? That's the kind of disdain that the disciples had for what they saw Jesus taking place. What in the world are you doing talking to this woman? And woman, what in the world do you want? That's the mystery that the disciples have stumbled across as they come back to the well with some food. Secondly, we see the method here. Read with me in verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. The method here is a method of personal evangelism. For most Christians, when we hear the word personal evangelism, we get very uncomfortable. Because you and I know, generally speaking, that we have some kind of responsibility, some kind of expectation that we are to share our faith, that we are to reach out to those around us who don't know God, who don't attend church, who don't seem to live the kind of life that communicates that they have ever given their lives to Christ. So here's what we're going to be spending our time on throughout the remainder of of our time this morning, and that is this whole idea of personal evangelism. 
So the woman, after the disciples have returned, drops her water pot and leaves. We don't know why she dropped. The disciples don't tell us. John doesn't record. Was it empty? Was it full and she's now left it for Jesus? Did she forget it in haste and just rush back into the city? We don't really know. We could only speculate as to why she dropped the water pot and returned back to the city. But the physical chore of fetching water out of the well has been surpassed by this spiritual reality. She thinks she has met the Christ. Nothing else matters. She has a compulsion to leave where she is and to go back to the city to tell others about what she has just encountered. She was going to go into the city, think about this, and she was going to remind the other men of the sordid past by her saying to them, I just met a total stranger who has told me Everything that I have done. Well, you know, they might have thought, well, we kind of know what you've been doing too. And we can't believe you're even bringing that up to our attention. But she had put all of that aside because of the overwhelming sense of urgency that she had and the reality that she has just met this person that she thinks to be the Christ. She wasn't going to let her sordid past dampen her excitement and her enthusiasm about this person that she has just met. But rather than coming into the city and making a blunt declaration that she has in fact found the Messiah, this outcast who has no credible standing in the community, probably has no track record of trustworthiness, and absolutely has no religious training of any kind, tactfully asks the question, This is not the Christ, is it? She phrases the question in such a way that she is expecting a negative response to that. It is a tactful way of asking this question, likely in hopes that they are going to inquire more of her and want to go see this man for them very selves. So the men are intrigued at this person that she has met, and they do indeed want to go and see this person for themselves, and so they are going to go out of the city, and now they are on their way to see Jesus because of the testimony of this woman. Now, as we think about personal evangelism, I came across some research that shares with you and I the top five reasons why Christians don't share their faith, why Christians don't reach out to other people. Number one, I don't know enough. There are many who believe, I don't have enough information, I don't have enough facts, I don't think that I can adequately answer all the questions, and so little old me, who probably doesn't know enough, doesn't want to be embarrassed, and so I don't want to risk being asked something that I can't answer or explain. If we look at this little snapshot, how much does this woman know? What does she know? Only that Jesus said to her, you have five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. That was it. She had zero information about who this guy was other than he knew something about my past. How much do you and I know about who Jesus is? How much do you and I know about God's plan of redemption? How many of us could at least articulate that man has been separated from God by their sin, 
And God sent Jesus to solve the sin problem by dying on the cross and paying our penalty. And for all who will ask Jesus into their lives, He will save them. Do we have the ability to present that to someone in some kind of educational way, in some kind of a meaningful way? We know the books of the Bible. We know about His birth. We know about His death. We know about His resurrection. We know about the miracles He's performed. We know how He's challenged the Pharisees. We know how He's fulfilled prophecy. You know how He saved you. You know what He saved you from. Can we not at least share with others our own personal testimony of how we have come to know the Lord? Do you know the peace of God? Do you know the joy of the Lord? Do you experience His strength? Do you have hope in who He is? We know enough. Number two, I am not an evangelist. Well, you know what? There aren't a lot of evangelists out there. Some travel the country. Some travel the world and earn a living by going around and sharing the Gospel. But the description of of an evangelist is not supposed to be vocational. It's supposed to be missional. We are evangelists by virtue of the saving grace of Christ and our willingness to do what God has called us to do, and that is to tell others about Him. There's a group called the American Church Growth Council that surveyed some 10,000 Christians or 10,000 people, and here's what they concluded. 79% of the 10,000 that they interviewed began to attend church through the invitation of a friend. 79% attended the church because of an invitation of a friend. Only 6% were attracted to the church by a pastor. Now, how about that? I can vouch for that. Only 5% by the educational ministries of the church. You see, you don't have to be a vocational evangelist to tell others about what God has done for you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And the overwhelming majority of people will come to church if we simply ask them to do so. Number three, I don't want to be pushy. Well, in another survey of non church attenders, non-church attenders, it was revealed that 65% said they would respond favorably to an invitation from a friend. 65% of people who don't attend church would come if a friend invited them. Listen to this. 15% said that they would respond favorably to an invitation from a total stranger. Pushy isn't inviting someone to church. Pushy is manipulating, guilting, harassing, humiliating. Think about that. If you were this week to ask ten people to attend church with you, statistically, close to half would come. Do you dare try? Do you know anybody that doesn't attend church regularly? Number four, I don't know any non-Christians. Tom Rayner, who is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention and has been an author and a speaker for uh, 30 plus years, tells us this, that only 41% 
of all Americans attend church regularly on a typical weekend. 41%. Each new generation becomes increasingly unchurched. So the total average is only 41%. If you break it down by generation, the builder generation, those born before 1946, 51% of them attend church regularly on a typical weekend. The boomers, those between, born between 46 and 64, only 41% of them attend church regularly. Of the busters, those born between 65 and 76, only 34% of them attend church regularly. The bridgers, born between 77 and 94, only 30% of them attend church regularly. And amongst millennials, the new young adult population that is out there today, it is estimated that only 20% or perhaps less attend church regularly on a typical weekend. You know, you could, you could close your eyes and throw a dart into a crowd and you would almost definitely hit somebody who doesn't attend church regularly. The excuse that we don't know any non-Christians just doesn't wash because there are people all around us who are not engaged regularly in the worship of God and in exposure to the truth of His Word. Number five, my walk with God isn't all it should be. Well, none can say that my walk with God is perfect, Right? Few would say it is everything it should be. But if we feel like our walk with God isn't all it should be, and it is, an, it is a barrier to our inviting others to church or sharing Christ with them, it's a very, very easy problem to fix. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Read the Word. Cry out to God through prayer. Serve Him. Repeat. Confess, read, pray, serve, continue. You don't have to be a spiritual giant in order to share your faith. We only have to be willing. Christians today struggle with this. We just aren't willing to tell others about Christ. We're not willing to invite them to church unless there's some big event going on. And for whatever reason of the five that we just mentioned... We just don't have a burden for the lost people around us, the de-churched who have lost hope in religion and who desperately need the life-changing experience with the living water. You and I have been deceived, and I'm speaking to myself here, you and I have been deceived into believing that if we live a life that is moral and we do our best to honor God, that others are going to see that and they are magically going to be drawn to Jesus. I'll tell you, it's not true. If that were true, then churches in America would not be closing its doors. They would be building and planting because there's a lot of people out there who are living devoted lives to the Lord, but nobody is speaking about how to come to know this Lord. Let me say it like this. Let me suppose, let's suppose you were in imminent danger all right? You're in imminent danger, and I run up to you, and I'm jumping up and down, and I've got a frantic look on my face, and I'm pointing, and I'm doing this. What are you going to conclude? What is wrong with you? I mean, did you miss your medication today? I mean, I don't understand what you're doing. 
you would not understand that you're in imminent danger unless I said, hey, look out, there's a car coming at you, or your house is on fire, or something disastrous is about to come to you. We believe that if we just live a righteous life, that the masses will come to know Christ, and it's just not true. We have to share the truth about who God is and about who Jesus is and about how people can come to know Him. Is everybody going to respond? No. Is everybody going to slap you on the back and thank you? No. But will you be faithful to the call? Absolutely. Will God be pleased with our efforts? Absolutely. Will some respond and be saved? Absolutely. You know, we believe in the doctrine of election. We believe that there are people out there that God has called to salvation. We don't know who they are because there's not a big sign over their head and their bodies aren't glowing so we know who to go to. But by faith, we are to share the message so that whoever responds will respond. The Christians, by and large, are not doing that today. And so the mass of lost humanity continues in their lostness until someone speaks and they receive the gift of life. So the method here is personal evangelism. We go to section number three here. Now the mission. We see the mission, verses 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the mission that we hear from the words of Jesus is to do the Father's work. It was why He came. It was to complete the eternal plan of redemption. And so God's eternal plan of redemption that has been in His heart and in His mind before anything or anyone was created is now in process of being fulfilled. And this is why Jesus has come is to share God's eternal plan of redemption with the world. His priority was spiritual, not physical. The disciples are urging Him to eat. They're concerned about His physical well-being. He has been on a long journey like they have, and He needs food, and He's tired. But Jesus says that, I eat a spiritual food that you do not know about. His concern was about the spiritual. You and I are distracted by this physical life far more than we realize, aren't we? And there's a lot of it that we can't do anything about. We have jobs, we have school, we have to raise a family. We need to rest and recharge ourselves so that we can go through each week. So there's a lot that we're busy in that we can't do anything about. But you know what I found to be true in my life? is that I can always find time for the things that are most important to me. Whether it's riding a bike, or going to the gym, or watching TV, or whatever. I will always find time to do what is most important to me. So we have to ask ourselves, of the time that we have available that isn't obligated by work or school or raising a family, what are we going to do with it? Do we have a spiritual priority with the time that God has given to us or are we consumed and distracted by this physical world? You know, the great thing about being retired is that you're no longer constrained by a job. You're no longer constrained by raising a family. Now, the body doesn't do what it used to do, right? 
but there's a lot more time available, time to serve the Lord. So what can we begin to do to reshape the usage of the time that we have available? Let me encourage you to pray and ask God what he would have you do in service to him, most especially in reaching out to those who are not believers in Christ or who are not attending a church. You see, Jesus' work is the work of redemption. This is, what he's, this is what it's about. This is why he came. He came to preach the good news. He's on an unstoppable journey to the cross. And that's what's dictating who he talks to and where he goes and what he does to do the work of the Father. So Jesus is going to use a picture image here. It's a physical picture to communicate this spiritual truth to these disciples. The picture is this. The spiritual harvest is always ready. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. So a farmer plants his crop and gets it ready, and then he just prays for rain, and when it's time to harvest, he goes and harvests. But there's a long gap between there. What Jesus is saying is that is not the way it works in the spiritual world. The harvest is always ready. Most likely at Jacob's well, as Jesus is having this encounter with the disciples, there are green fields of wheat all around them that are not yet ready for harvest. And as Jesus looks out and sees this horde of Samaritans coming to see him, their white garments set against the backdrop of the green fields make them look like grains of wheat ready to be cultivated. It's an unforgettable image to these men that are hearing these words and being challenged with this idea of doing the work of the Father You know, if we're not looking, we will never realize that there is a harvest that is ripe for us to participate in. If we're so distracted by the physical world, if we're so unconvinced that we're incapable of being used by God and sharing the message, we will miss those who are ready to be harvested for God's eternal kingdom. What we need to know is there is great joy in harvesting people for the kingdom. Verse 36, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. The wages here is unmistakable. Wages is what we earn for the work that we do. Gathering fruit for eternal life is participating in the harvest of souls For the kingdom of God. And what Jesus says here is that the harvesters and those being harvested rejoice greatly in the harvest. Those that have sown, those that have reaped, those that are being reaped have great joy in the harvest that is taking place. But even more than that, for those participating in the harvest, there is a spiritual reward. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, one in Christ, one body. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You and I are going to be rewarded for what we do in service to the Lord. That includes not only the life we live, but also in our participation in the harvest of lost souls. 
Well, why don't more people participate if there is great joy in this harvesting? Well, we've been deceived into thinking that we don't know enough. We're not evangelists. We don't want to be pushy. We don't know any lost people, and our walk with God is inadequate. Perhaps we're too caught up and distracted in the physical world and a selfish life that we live to be bothered by those that are destined for hell. But the good news is that you and I don't have to do all of the work. Verse 37 and 38. For in this case, the saying is true. This is again Jesus speaking. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered in to their labor. So in this case, the disciples have not invested anything into the Samaritan people. Jews had not invested anything into the region of Samaria to be able to say, I am now harvesting that which I have helped to sow. That is not true for the disciples and for the Jewish people in general. The people that have reaped, excuse me, that have sown into the lives of the Samaritans are Moses, because remember, they only accept the first five books of the Bible, the message of John the Baptist, and now the words that Jesus is very shortly going to share with the Samaritans. And through this, the disciples are going to be blessed to be able to participate in harvesting lost souls for the kingdom of God when they didn't have any contribution to it at all. In the physical world, the farmer plants and he cultivates and then he goes out and harvests in the spiritual world. That isn't always so. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. Paul speaking here. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. We're just his tools. We're just vessels that he chooses to use to participate in his eternal plan of redemption and the harvest of lost souls. Our last section, let's go very quickly here. The Messiah. We've seen the mystery. We've seen the method. We've seen the mission, and now we come to the Messiah. We're going to read verses 38 through 42. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We have no idea what Jesus taught. We have no idea of the interaction that took place between he and the disciples and the Samaritan people in those two days. But what we do know from John's account is that many came to a saving faith as Jesus shared with them the words of life. They are convinced that He is the Christ, not just on the woman's testimony, but on their own hearing. And their declaration is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Do you believe that's true? Do we really believe that there is a lost world separated from God for all of eternity and that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Jesus opens the door for global evangelism in this single encounter with the woman at the well and then in the two days he spends in Samaria with the men. Remembering the words of John the Baptist in John 1.29, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. You see, you and I, through our testimonies, we point others to Jesus and we allow them to hear his testimony for themselves and then be convinced that he really is who we have thought him to be. You know, I can share my testimony with a lot of people and they can be drawn to Jesus, but my testimony can't save anybody. It's the truth of God's word as revealed through the ministry of Christ that any will come to believe. Will we participate in God's eternal plan of redemption? Will we look out and see that the fields are ripe for harvest? Would you pray with me? Father, we are all uncomfortable when it comes to the idea of evangelism and reaching out. And there are a few of us who are as obedient and faithful as we ought to be in that area. In fact, most are falling woefully short, myself included. God, I pray that we would be reminded of the great blessing that is ours in knowing who you are. That we would think back and remember of the difference that you've made in our life. The deepest needs that can only be met by you. God, would you remind us and burden our hearts for the many around us who don't know you, who are living their life following empty philosophy, bogged down by worldly religion, living in the depravity and the lostness of their mind. Father, we are not the living water, but we know who is, and we have been given a deposit of that wellspring that gives us eternal life and the ability to share that truth with others. Father, help us to do that. Help us to be faithful to that. Would you make us aware of the opportunities that you provide for us to tell others about who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that you would help us and accomplish this. For your glory and your honor, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and sing this song, we're going to sing a very familiar